From seven days of the week to the seven wonders of the world, culture is shaped by sevens, and the all-electric BMW i7 is no exception. Be welcomed in with automatic opening doors, shape your experience behind the wheel with a curved display, or recline in the back seat and escape into the 31-inch theater screen. Reshape the way you drive in the redefining all-electric BMW i7. BMW, the ultimate electric driving machine. See your local BMW center today for a test drive. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Uh, Joe, I, I bet I can guess what shoes you've got on your feet. Oh, no, I totally messed that up. <laughs> well, why? What were you going to guess? I totally messed it up. I was supposed to say, I bet I can guess what you've got on your... No, what shoes you've... You have... Oh, oh, no, I remember. I bet I can guess where you got those shoes. Uh, where? On your feet. Oh, that's <laughs> a good joke. Wow, that really was a disastrous <laughs> opening to this uh, podcast. I know. I can't believe I messed that up so much. Um, okay, well, with that embarrassment aside, um, we are actually going to talk about shoes today. I'm really excited because not only are we talking about shoes, we're going to be talking about sneakers and collecting sneakers and the market for sneakers. And as someone who owns a lot of Nikes, including one or two pairs of Jordans and Dunks, uh, I am particularly excited about this discussion. So I know nothing about the market for sneakers. Are Jordans better than Nikes? Well, Jordans, uh, Nike, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a category of Nike. Oh, oh God, I just keep embarrassing <laughs> myself today. Um, okay, well, all right, without further ado then, why don't we bring on our guest for this episode? It is Josh Luber. He is the founder of StockX, which is basically a stock exchange for sneakers. So we're going to talk all about what it's like to make a market in a semi-unusual asset, I would say. Josh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tell us about your stock exchange for sneakers. What is it? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, StockX is a consumer marketplace, not unlike eBay or Amazon. It's a place where we connect buyers and sellers. And in particular, right now, we connect them to buy sneakers. But the way that we do that is in the exact same format, the exact same process that the stock exchange uses. And what that means is, first of all, it's anonymous, right? Buyers and sellers, you know, transact with the market. Um, you don't have to worry about who the seller is or where they're located or what the review is. It's totally anonymous, just like buying the share of stock. Second, there is data 
there is data to understand what things are worth, what things are selling for, and have a history of data. So unlike going to Amazon and seeing only what something is listed for, you can see every price that it's ever sold for. But more importantly than those two things is what's called a, a, the live bid-ask market, which is how the, the stock exchange, how the stock market reaches a market price. Buyers place bids, how much they're willing to pay for something. And sellers place asks, how much they're willing to sell it for. And when a bid and ask meet, the transaction happens automatically. There's a reason why the stock exchange has been the most efficient form of commerce for hundreds of years, and this is why. And we are taking that process that the stock exchange uses and bringing it to consumer goods. And we're starting with sneakers. Josh, can we step back for a second? Because when I think about investable assets, um, I have to admit, I do not necessarily think about sneakers. What, what is the market like for high-value sneakers? The, the biggest distinction between sort of uh, calling this a stock market um, versus how people traditionally think about it is that it's really about connecting buyers and sellers to exchange a physical good. The fact mm. that you may or may not be able to invest in sneakers and make money is almost tangential to that. But that said, the sneaker resale market within the United States is about a $1.2, $1.3 billion industry. So that's people wow. buying a pair of sneakers at, say, Foot Locker, and then going and turning around and reselling them on StockX for $100 more, $200 more than they paid for it. So uh, let's back up. Tell us about yourself. How did you get, what made you want to create this? What's your interest in sneakers and how did your interest in financial markets come together? My background is uh, that I'm a startup guy. I've started and run a few startups before this and none of them have ever been within the sneaker industry. Because on a personal note, I have collected sneakers since I was, you know, probably in middle school. Um, I am 38 years old, and I have the exact same story as every other 38-year-old sneakerhead, which is I grew up playing basketball when Jordan played, and I always wanted Air Jordans, and my mother would never buy me Air Jordans. And as soon as I had some money, I bought Air Jordans. Right, exactly. And you know, and and so that was a, a personal passion. And at some point along the way. As I was doing a lot of other data work in my career, I decided to try to figure out whether we could pull in sneaker data and whether we could build a price guide. And so in early 2012, I created a company that was called Campless, C-A-M-P-L-E-S-S, and it was a price guide. It was the Kelly Blue Book for sneakers where we were pulling in data from all the other places that sneakers sold, primarily on eBay, and figuring out what they were actually worth. And that was the genesis of this. As the, as the sneaker data company, as the price guide grew, as people started using it, there was a natural progression of, well, if I know the price of one pair of sneakers, then I could tell you the value of your entire sneaker collection. And you could look at that data the same way you would look at a stock portfolio. And once you know the price of one pair and you know portfolio pricing, then there was this natural leap of maybe we could actually create a marketplace that operated like a stock market. So, uh, what is in your collection? Uh, what is your pro your single prize pair of uh, Jordans? And uh, give us a range for the value of your collection, if you don't mind, based on uh, the prices on your site. Can I hijack Joe's question and say, can you also explain the difference between Nikes and Air Jordans? <laughs> sure. So um, there's a lot of different sneaker brands out there, and um, and Nike, uh, which owns the Air Jordan brand, right? But they are separate brands. 
um, have historically been the dominant part of the resale market, the secondary market for sneakers, dating back to 1985 when Air Jordans were first released. And so um, it's just a distinction between the two brands that you know Nikes make Nikes and and uh, and Jordan brand makes Air Jordans, um, but they're both you know make up the dominant share of the resale market. In fact. Through February of 2015, Nike, including Jordan brand, accounted for 96% of the resale sneaker market. And in February wow. 2015, Adidas released the Yeezy, which is Kanye West's shoe with Adidas. And it started a, a really year and a half process of Adidas becoming a lot more relevant on the secondary market. And today, Adidas makes up about 30% of the resale market in terms of dollars. But it is still overwhelmingly dominated by Nikes and in particular, Air Jordans. All right, now tell us about your collection a little bit. So you know, I've been collecting sneakers for probably 30 years, um, and I have a very uh, average collection within the sneakerhead uh, world. Uh, I have about maybe 350 to 400 pairs of sneakers, nice. which sounds crazy, uh, but there are people with thousands of pairs of sneakers. So you know, within the sneaker oh universe, uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty average uh, collection, but. Um, I do have um, one pair in particular that is is pretty special. Um, so um, we announced a couple months ago that Eminem is an investor and partner with StockX, um, oh, wow. and um, and through that um, I was able to become friendly with um, people there, and I was given a pair of Air Jordan Four uh, Eminem Carhartt, and this was a collaboration that Eminem and the brand Carhartt did with Air Jordan, and there were only ten pairs released to the public. They were sold on eBay. This is before StockX existed, and they sold for an average price of twenty three thousand dollars. Nice. And so um, I have a pair of those. Um, I will not be selling mine. Mine is uh, there's more sentimental value in terms of our relationship with uh, with Eminem and the fact that it came from him. But uh, it's certainly the uh, the most valuable and, and most interesting pair in my collection. That is pretty sweet. Uh, Josh, I I have so many questions um, right now. <laughs> I'm trying to narrow them down. Um, okay, so first of all, I have to ask, do you wear your collection of sneakers? Everyone within this sneaker world, um, there's a there's a spectrum from people on, on the far one end who are pure business people and are here just to, to, to make money um, to the sort of pure sneaker collectors who could care less about the value of the shoes and they wear them and... Um, and aren't really trying to, uh, not, aren't concerned about about uh, sort of maintaining the value or the or the uh, co uh, condition. Sneakers, just like anything else, um, once they're worn, uh, the more they're worn, the value of them goes down. Um, me, in particular, I wear pretty much all of my sneakers. Um, I buy sneakers for myself and I wear them. And I'm not a, a very big reseller trying to make money. Um, but with about 400 pairs of sneakers, there's certainly some pairs I haven't worn yet. Um, but I'm certainly I certainly will at, at some point. All right, let's get to the subject of the you know your financial market for sneakers because this sort of speaks to a reoccurring theme that we've discussed on the Odd Lots podcast, which is the relationship between the listing of a price, the creation of an index, the creation of transparent pricing, and then the market itself. And we've discussed this in several ways. We've had multiple episodes about the bond market and its relative mm -hmm. transparency or lack of transparency. We've talked about baseball cards and the Beckett magazine and Beanie Babies and the magazine that came around those in the 90s and how that led to price booms. So let's talk about what 
the creation of transparent pricing and consistent listing means for the actual functioning of the sneaker market. What have you seen in terms of the back and forth, what your uh, initial recording of eBay prices meant to the market and how it traded? And then, of course, uh, your new site, uh, StockX, and how that has affected the market itself. That's a phenomenal question, right? Transparency of data is everything. And it is uh, so rare to find true transparency of pricing information um, in any market right now besides the actual stock market. And that's a big part of what um, drives us and, and, and was the foundation of creating this. A phenomenal example of this, go back to the campless days. And so when we were a price guide and we were the sort of the, the, uh, the index for sneakers and what um, they were selling for, we created a, a blog that was kind of like Freakonomics for sneakers and doing this really high level data analysis and putting mm. it on the blog. And one of them was an analysis into the difference between actual price and the perception of price on eBay. Right? So there was this perception within the sneaker community that sneakers were very expensive on eBay. And we had a hypothesis that the, whatever you see on eBay at any given moment is something that is overpriced because it's been sitting there for a long time or, or the inverse, right? It's been sitting there for a long time because it's overpriced and that you're more likely to see those because the good deals will disappear immediately and someone will buy mm. them. And so by having right. access to the, the actual sales data and to be able to look through that and create transparency into what its sneakers actually sell for, what we found was there was a, a difference of about 30% between people's perception of price given the average number of days that we see each auction. I mean, we can go into the, the details of it, but essentially between the actual price of what a shoe sold for versus what people would think it sold for, given how often they saw it, there was a difference of 30% in the perception of what a hmm. sneaker was worth. So Josh, um, Joe kind of already touched on this, but we've, we've done a lot of episodes about the bond market and how difficult it is to trade bonds simply because unlike stocks, a bond will come in all sorts of flavors of um, maturity and coupon and things like that. And it kind of strikes me that sneakers are similar in that at the very least you have a variety of sizes, right? So like how does the size issue affect trading of sneakers? Do people only want to buy sneakers in their sizes or do they look beyond that um, because they're betting on future value? There's, I think there is some similarity um, in the sort of lack of transparency in the sneaker market, but it's not really around um, size, right? It's really about channel. Um, first to mention quickly on size, um, you know, the entire sneaker resale market is just supply and demand, right? It is Econ 101. Um, it is the difference between the, the supply that the brands put out and what the demand is for those particular sneakers. And the gap in that um, and how big or small that is will depend, you know, how much the shoe sells for. I mean, it, it is pretty straightforward. And in general, even on the limited and exclusive sneakers, the brands uh, know pretty well the size distribution of the population. So there may be less size 14s in the market, but there's less people that want to buy a size 14 in the market. Right. So in general, um, that doesn't have too much um, difference or too much disparity in the price based on the size. But where the majority of the sort of lack of transparency still happens is in the distinction between the channels. So 
unlike you know uh, a stock market which essentially has a monopoly on any particular um, stock, you can buy or sell sneakers anywhere. Um, you know, eBay is, the, is still the largest marketplace. StockX. There's other mobile sneaker apps. Um, there are people buy and sell on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. I mean, anywhere that sneakerheads come into contact with each other, shoes are going to be bought and sold. And the majority of those channels, just like in the majority of other marketplaces, there's just there's imperfect information, right? The seller. Um, is the one who really understands the market better and the buyers left it. Well, whatever the sellers, I can see whatever they're, they're selling for. And so I bring that all in one place, right? And a really fundamental tenet of how StockX works and why it's like the stock market is that there's one place, there's one called ticker symbol for one shoe, right? So if you go to eBay and you type in the Air Jordan 11 Space Jam, which is a shoe that is the, 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 the most popular shoe that Air Jordan put out in 2016, and there's rumored to be over a million pairs, but people are, are buying and reselling them. If you type in Air Jordan 11 Space Jam on eBay, you will get 1,000 listings, maybe 5,000 listings. But if you go to the New York Stock Exchange and you want to buy a share of Apple stock, there's one mm. ticker symbol for Apple. And in the same way, there's one place, there's one ticker symbol for a Jordan 11 Space Jam on StockX. And by bringing every bid and every ask to one place, you can now create more transparency of what's going on in the market. There's still 19 other channels, and you still lose that transparency if you're within one, any of those channels. But that's the bigger idea around using a stock market to drive transparency. It's not only historical pricing data, but it's also about what is going on right now. What do people want to buy it for and what do people want to sell it for? So I have two questions. One is, since you've had this push in sort of multiple endeavors to create transparency, A, has there been an observed, I guess I would say, narrowing of spreads where even across multiple channels, because there is this reference, the mm. prices of a given sneaker, do they tend to cluster more as people start to form on some idea? And two, um, is there any sort of a cross-sneaker price correlation, Gaussian copulas, so to speak, where <laughs> one sneaker trades sort of similarly to another sneaker? They're not identical, but maybe they're of the same year or of the same style. And so you start to see relationships in the pricing of slightly different sneakers. Correlation. These are these are phenomenal questions, right? This is exactly what we see happening and, and what we um, uh, observe and, and look for as we continue to build the market and, and make sure that it, that it works the way it should. Um, so the first question with regard to, to spread, and it's really about sort of narrowing of margins. The people that are most um, upset about StockX on today, as we as we're you know ten months into this, um, are the ones who used to be able to um, sell sneakers for more money and trade on imperfect information. Um, but as you bring more buyers together, and in particular the shoes that have high volume where there's really a lot of bids and a lot of asks happening at the same time. And you can literally see bids and asks coming off the board, you know, real time, you know, as, as um, trades are happening. Um, what we see is that there's lower uh, profit within those shoes, uh, within the market, than people used to be able to get. And that's natural, right? I mean, that, that's natural to happen. As more buyers then come into the market, right, it'll start to, to push that price back up. But on day one, all the sellers um, are constantly looking for as many places to sell as possible. So they're the ones that are uh, more easily um, or more quickly going to utilize StockX and list there. So as you have more sellers, the price will come down. And we do see spreads really low on the very popular shoes like the Jordan 11 Space Jam. So you may see a spread of 
two, five, ten dollars. But on a shoe that came out maybe six, seven years ago where there's a lot less volume, that spread mm. might be fifty dollars or a hundred dollars. And so it's really about liquidity. And we don't have perfect liquidity the way a stock market does, where every Apple stock needs to be traded through that ticker symbol. Right. right? But the more liquidity that comes there, the, the better that that becomes. Sounds like on the run and off the run bond price. No, this sounds exact. I'm sorry, but this sounds exactly like pitches I have heard from bond trading uh, venues for the past five or six years. It's really phenomenal the overlap here. The the larger hypothesis is that you should be able to buy or sell any consumer good using this process, right? As long as it's not a purely commoditized product already, like say uh, plastic water bottles or toilet paper. And it's not a complete, unique, one-of-a-kind item like a work of art or a house. Anything that has some finite quantity of supply, all we're doing is adding the demand side of the equation. And once you do that, you can get into a place where you have a, a, a more efficient market that, um, that allows people to, to buy and sell leveraging you know, the, the piece that no one ever had, which is the demand side. So it really is, in some cases, or in, in some views, um, almost uh, logical, the logical step of, you know, Stock is, is stock market is about the delivery of a digital certificate for ownership of uh, a piece of the company. This is just mm-hmm. a, a delivery of a physical good. Everything else should be exactly the same. Josh, what is the most valuable sneaker of all time? And what <laughs> would you recommend that Joe and I go buy now if we were looking for something that was maybe undervalued that was going to um, pop sometime in the future? <laughs> The most valuable sneaker, uh, or the, let's say the most expensive sneaker that is sold recently, um, about a month or two ago, Nike released what's uh, called the the Nike Mag, which is the self-lacing shoe from Back to the Future 2. Oh, yeah. They made 89 <laughs> pairs, right? They made 89 pairs. They were sold through uh, raffles um, to raise money for Michael J. Fox Parkinson Foundation. And uh, once they got into the market um, with only 89 pairs and it being, you know, you have the nostalgia aspect of Back to the Future and you have sneakerheads and you have power lacing. um, There was one pair that reportedly sold for $200,000 at an auction and another pair that (laughs) sold for $100,000 at a different auction. Um, We had one of those sell on StockX so far and it sold for about – it sold for $25,000. And there's others that are listed right now on StockX for about fifty dollars or $60,000. But that shoe is so rare with only 89 pairs in the world. It essentially doesn't exist. I mean it it might as well be a unique one-of-a-kind item because the odds of finding any one person that's willing to pay $25,000, let alone $200,000, it's so – you know, it's just so rare. But – that's the that's what's out there right now. It's certainly the thing that um, that all sneakerheads are sort of aware of, and um, and it's a pretty cool thing because it, it it literally works like in Back to the Future too. You put your foot in it, and it and it laces automatically right around it. And for an, uh, real quickly before you go, uh, for an entrant like me or Tracy. Uh, who sort of, I have a few sneakers, but I'm not really a sneakerhead. Yeah, I clearly have no sneakers and I'm not a sneakerhead. Like if we wanted to sort of dip our dip our foot into the water, where might be like a fun place? To, what, what would be one sneaker that a beginner might buy? Something cool, but that's available and affordable. Right, and, and, and that's the key because, you know, buying sneakers on the resale market to make money is not 
uh, actually a great idea. The majority of the money is made by those who can acquire the sneakers at the retail price and then turn around and sell them on the resale market. But you know what Adidas has done really well in the past year is they've taken a lot of shoes that um, are very limited and hard to get and sell for a lot of money. And in particular, there's two models. There's the Adidas NMD and there's the Adidas Ultra Boost. And there's been a lot of very uh, rare colors that are sell for hundreds and thousands of dollars. But they've also put out a lot of colors that are not rare, that you can walk in the store and get. And Boost is very comfortable. And you have this model that you know other people wearing literally the exact same shoe in a different color that might sell for $2,000. And you can go in the store and buy it for $140 or $150. So I think that would be a, a, a sort of really good intro shoe for most people because you're not going to be able to get a pair of Air Jordans. You're not going to be able to get a pair of Yeezys because they're just too rare and they sell for, for too much money. All right. Josh Luber of StockX, the uh, stock market for sneakers. Fascinating conversation. Uh, I will, will hopefully have you back in a year. We can talk about how the uh, market has you know evolved and gotten more liquid if it has. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for having me. The next time we can talk, we can also talk about how we've added watches and handbags and other verticals because we're moving beyond sneakers pretty soon. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. So, Joe, I I feel like I still um, have so many questions and so many thoughts on sneakers that I never thought I would have. Yeah, same. But I, you know, I love all the parallels that you pointed out and that we see between how the market has evolved and liquidity and pricing between sneakers and bonds. It really is sort of fascinating that there is some sort of universal truths about market structure out there. Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on this. You could go either way, right? Like on the one hand, markets tend to beget markets and liquidity begets liquidity. So even if you have an esoteric asset like a Air Jordan, um, you could eventually have transparent pricing for that. But on the other hand, this kind of reminds me of the conversation we had way back in the day about the Beanie Baby bubble, where there was that catalog of market participants, and they all just kind of came up with prices that tended to benefit them. And like, I don't mean to imply that that's what StockX is doing, but in terms of collectibles, you can see a parallel, right? Right. The only differences I would say is, A, sneakers actually have some value because you can wear them unlike a Beanie Baby. You didn't wear your Beanie Babies? B, sneakers have been cool forever, so they're clearly not a fad because people have been wearing sneakers forever. And three, it's interesting, so much of the market dominated by Nike, which doesn't have, you know, which obviously is not just going to flood the market one day and sort of destroy all interest where so you have like this stable brand behind it. But there clearly are you know, potentially uh, quite a few similarities between sneakers and other collectibles that have gone crazy over time. All right. Uh, shall we leave it at that for today before Let's I embarrass myself uh, yet again? <laughs> you didn't embarrass yourself. <laughs> no, I can't believe I messed up that joke. All right. <laughs> I, let, let's go. Uh, I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Thanks for listening.
The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. 